Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking lithium. A hundred years ago, companies and governments were scrambling to find and produce oil. Now, the lithium-ion battery is transforming economies and forecasts to replace the internal combustion engine, and the scramble for lithium is on. Whilst it's abundant, lithium ores that can be economically extracted and turned into high-quality batteries are relatively rare and bless only certain countries, a fact recognised by Chinese battery producers for some time and, with the support of the government, led to securing of supplies over the last decade. What does this mean for Europe, for the US, playing catch-up on their battery supply chains? What does it mean for geopolitics? All of this is discussed in Ukash Bednarski's book, Lithium, the Global Race for Battery Dominance and the New Energy Revolution. Ukash has a background as a commodity trader, a background in rare earths, and is now a battery metals analyst. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a review on the podcast platform you're using. That helps promote the show to a new audience and helps us continue to attract great guests. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Ukash, welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Uh, thank you for having me here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Uh, you always have interesting guests and uh, great topics, so I hope we can you know, maintain those standards during this conversation. Excellent. Well, I know we can. I'm excited to, excited to have this discussion. I've just finished your book, uh, Lithium, The Global Race for Battery Dominance and the, and the New Energy Revolution. Two things struck me. Firstly, one was this, this kind of reads like the, very, the first chapters of the prize, Daniel Jurgen's classic book on the, on the rise of the oil industry. Some organizations see the, the, see the future more clearly and are immediately out trying to vertically integrate and secure supply. Others don't and other regions don't. And then secondly, the thing that struck me was how recent all this is. We're not talking 20 years ago. We're talking two, three years ago in terms of much of the episodes. That's the story we are going to, to tell. I'd love to, before we dig into the, dig into the, the, the book, just get a, you know, what, what, made you, what made you write this? You know, I've always been a big uh, bookworm and uh, I read a lot and across different genres. So it always has been my ambition to write a book. And since uh, I've been working in this industry and following it for a long time, I felt that I'm the best place to write a book about lithium and, uh, you know, battery economy at large. Especially since when I looked at the market, you have authors, uh, who write about uh, other commodities, especially oil, in an accessible way for a wider audience. You know, you mentioned Daniel, Daniel Yergin, who uh, always has been an authority for me in this space. But I haven't seen on the market any book that would tackle the, the lithium and the, this new energy revolution that we are exper experiencing and uh, which is, uh, you know, related to the uptake of the lithium-ion battery. In, in many different industries. Mm. And part of that, in a way, is because a lot of this is not familiar, both in terms of the technology, but also in terms of where the revolution is taking place. This isn't actually, this story doesn't, you know, it starts in 
ironically enough, Exxon and you know Oxford University and Japan in terms of the development of the lithium-ion battery and its initial commercialization. But actually, this has been a very much a China story, an Asia story, and to some extent, a Latin America story. So let's start there. So the future idea of electric mobility was seen very early and seen for very strategic reasons as well as environmental reasons as a real opportunity for China. Can you sort of start there? Because it was a real, you know, compared to even the current US policy on, on supporting chips, for example, I mean, it, it pales in significance to compared to what the, the money the Chinese put into EVs at an early stage. Yes, also, as you noticed, I wanted to start this story from a different angle. I think uh, we being in the West, we are very Western-centric in the approach. And when we start to talk about lithium-ion battery, we start with, you know, its invention and then, uh, you know, first commercialization in Japan, uh, followed by the success of Tesla. But uh, this is not all of the story. And uh, China, uh, I think, truly developed this uh, battery economy. And it started with uh, Chinese leaders somehow realizing that they are uh, late to many major industries. So they uh, started to bet on developing industries of the future. They still do that, uh, whatever it is, uh, quantum computing or robotics or, uh, for that matter, battery. And the ambition was to transition from uh, being world's factory to world's uh, high-tech power. So uh, the battery industry, uh, among others, played a central role in that. And by betting on this uh, lithium-ion battery sector presented uh, multifaceted advantages. First of all, environmental, right? But also uh, sparring up the development of the chemical industry and automotive industry. So two big uh, segments of the economy. This, uh, you know, macro perspective, which uh, sort of set of directions, but from the micro perspective, that was also an individual effort of the entrepreneurs, uh, often small entrepreneurs, who tried to capitalize on this wider trend. From this uh, perspective, the battery industry in China really started with a development of e-bikes, which were uh, you know, pop popular early on, first uh, even uh, powered by acid, uh, acid-lead batteries and only then by lithium-ion batteries which provided enormous performance advantages. And uh, then also uh, the focus uh, became the development of the batteries for fast growing uh, electronic industry in China, right? So, so, so that's, that's what really started this industry in, uh, in China. Mm. Obviously there were, there were certain challenges, for instance, the lack of capital for entrepreneurs coming from the uh, centrally steered economy and very often the need to partner with state-owned companies in order to develop something. They were moving very fast and the industry itself grew very fast yeah. with, this, with this kind of spirit. And again, there's so much in there, isn't there? Because there was, the, from an environmental perspective, it was the, the smogs in Beijing, right? It, it wasn't the, down, the, well, the upstream impacts, I should say, of processing and mining a lot of these materials, right? Which is a, another part of this story. But it was, it was, was it the 863 plan? I mean, there was so much, initially these, the, you know, they were selling a thousand units in total uh, of EVs in China. I mean, it was, it took a long time to build up all these capabilities. And again, 
it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it was a story of private entrepreneurs, and we're going to come on to them next, but against a backdrop of a very long-term planning by the CP. Yes, I mean, planning uh, really played a major role here. So it was uh, something like an amalgamation of the effort of individual entrepreneurs who were sort of inspired and then backed up with institutional framework you know, regarding the execution of these wider plans. I think it's it's uh, interesting to mention that Deng Xiaoping, father of the modern China, at some point he was presented with a letter from four uh, renowned Chinese physicists which set high-tech development plan for a country at large. And uh, it took Deng only two days to accept it. So he really, you know, uh, saw the need for uh, setting China on the road to become a high-technology powerhouse. And since it happened in uh, March of 1986, that's where the name of this plan comes from, 863 plan, uh, because Chinese, they, they basically use this calendar uh, in different way than, than, than we do. So first the year and then the month. So that was the wider plan. Uh, there were also a smaller plans or, or more granular plans, if you will, dedicated to the development of the battery and the EV sector. The first idea was really to brand China as an electric vehicle power already during the uh, Olympics. Uh, but Unfortunately, they didn't uh, manage to, to move fast enough with this ambition. Uh, I mean, in, in 2008, electric vehicles uh, sold only in uh, a number of thousand units in China, uh, as you mentioned. And, uh, you know, at first the plans were really, really ambitious because Chinese were thinking that with the state of the technology at the time, they will be able to make 12% of its fleet to run on alternative energy already in 2012. So, uh, you know, from, from our perspective now, these goals were even comically ambitious. Mm. Obviously, that didn't happen. And as they moved forward, uh, then, uh, you know, these more granular development plans were introduced. Uh, most famous of them was uh, so-called uh, 10 Cities, 1,000 Vehicles program. Mm -hmm. And it was a very interesting plan because it had a decentralized approach. So, uh, you know, in countries, for instance, like South Korea, which are now high-tech powers, there, there were also plans, uh, government, uh, you know, steered plans for the development of the high-tech industry. But over there, the approach more was more about betting on the national champions. And the Chinese at first, they took a different approach. They basically encouraged for the, the, the major cities in China, the most uh, technologically developed cities in China, uh, to try to put a thousand vehicles on the roads by a certain deadline. And uh, so that's why 10 cities, thousand, uh, thousand vehicles name. Right? Mm. And, uh, and the details how they want to move on on this plan uh, were left to the municipal powers. Yeah, I found this and, fascinating in the book yeah, where you had, yeah, you know, every every different city had a different charging standard, standard, car standard and all the rest of it. So, you know, you, you could buy your electric vehicle in one city and it just wouldn't work in another. But oh, I guess all this to say that the and, and the story goes on to the point that we're now in this, the sort of the tipping point of 2019 and on. There was this backdrop of support, and that did mean there was a sense as well with the participants 
two things. Firstly, that they weren't the Chinese government wasn't going to allow them to go bankrupt, so that gave investor confidence and at least financing confidence. And secondly, there was this view that ultimately it all came down to lithium, and lithium was the the stuff, the new oil that was going to be drive this 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 future economy, and. China at that point had probably already exhausted the the reserves it had of that, and and other reserves were in tougher areas like Tibet, in the regions where the Uyghurs are, etc. And you had a couple of these companies see this very visionary leaders see this very early on and go and secure. And this is kind of the story of the book, right? The the gold rush, the getting out there to secure the lithium supplies that would need to be to meet this future lithium ion demand. And you you juxtapose how the Chinese, the two famous Chinese companies did this, and Gang Feng and Donkey, versus Arbemal as an example of the different stakeholder drivers they faced. Yeah, Gang Feng and and Tianqi Lithium, uh, two uh, Chinese major that now uh, still hold the substantial uh, market share, one of the largest lithium companies in the world and the mo- at the moment. And, uh, you know, development of these companies uh, and uh, generally lithium companies in China at large, you can argue that that it followed a certain uh, model. So uh, very often the people who created these companies, they worked in the state-owned companies before. So that's where they gathered the experience with lithium. And still keeping in mind that uh, at the time when when you were, uh, you know, getting experience in lithium, you were getting experience in lithium as a chemical which was used in air conditioning or in lubricants, so that kind of industries. But then with the development of this battery economy in early 2000s, really the demand for lithium started to to skyrocket. And then, uh, you know, some of these... uh, People who worked in the uh, state-owned companies uh, with lithium, they took the bold step and they went on their own, often purchasing the asset assets or, or at uh, you know bargain prices uh, from the state and developing them from the ground up. At first, uh, you know the competition was quite cutthroat. So this was a type of the you know big eat small uh, market where the companies which were, uh, you know, stronger, basically acquired the smaller companies uh, in order to get rid of the competition. And then the next the next step after the chain of acquisitions was to look for the financing, very often abroad. And here the Hong Kong uh, exchange play, play a role of this window to the world to get more capital, to grow even faster. And, uh, you know, the second important point in this process of development was to get the mineral resources abroad. Uh, Because at first, uh, Chinese companies uh, were dependent on the lithium resources situated domestically, but uh, they were, uh, you know, not really competitive because the extraction was taking place very often in a harsh environment, in places as Tibet, for instance. The, the resources uh, on the purity level was, were not very attractive. And uh, in the end, cost of their extraction was quite high. And in the end, uh, you know, they knew that it won't be enough uh, to satisfy the Chinese battery industry needs in the, in the long run. So really, these, these companies, both Tianqi and uh, Gangfeng, they started to look for 
mining assets abroad and started to uh, acquire uh, stakes in uh, new projects in different, in different places, in Australia, in, in Latin America. So, so uh, you know, that's, that, that was the model, basically. There's a lot in there, right? Because Chen Shi got the, the crown jewels in, in Australia of a huge deposit. I think they got, you know, 49% of that. There's a little bit of, I guess, chemistry at this point, right? So, and this is this a little bit, weaves in this debate about whether lithium really is a, a commodity or a specialty chemical, because things like those purity, impurities you mentioned really have an impact on, what, on how, how much processing needs to go on and whether that's economic or not. Can you just, why, why for China is Australia so much better as a source of lithium than, say, in Chile? Mm. I think Australia is especially attractive for uh, Chinese companies uh, due to two reasons, and they are quite simple. One is the geographical proximity, so you don't really need to spend much on the transportation costs. And, uh, you know, in commodity trading, cost of logistics is sometimes everything. It, it makes or kills the business. And uh, another thing is that in the last years, and I think this is the trend that, that is likely to stay, valid in the future is that uh, high performance electric vehicles, they need uh, high nickel batteries. And now in order to produce a high nickel battery, you cannot uh, use the lithium in any form. You need to use lithium in form of the lithium hydroxide. And one of the you know most economic routes, easiest routes to the production of uh, lithium hydroxide is to take the spodiumin concentrate which Australia at the moment abundantly supplies, and uh, turn it into the lithium hydroxide. So you've got these organizations out there realizing that actually the access to quality lithium ore is going to be crucial in the future when, when supplies come tight. And just like in the prize in Standard Oil, you also see this vertical integration happening. Can you talk to the drivers behind that? Yeah, so, you know, I see the parallel with uh, Rockefeller's standard oil uh, because Rockefeller quickly dominated early oil industry through integration, uh, uh, vertical integration, right, to streamline production and logistic, lower costs, and therefore undercut competition early on. And we can argue that this you know, major Chinese companies uh, followed a very, very similar model. But all of these organizations fundamentally saw the rate limiting factor as access to lithium. Is, is yes, that absolutely. right? Or... The access to lithium was a key, right? Because very often we talk about the uh, China's dominance uh, in the in, in battery industry, in the lithium industry. Okay, that's correct. But it's correct on the side of the production of the battery components, uh, battery chemicals, batteries themselves. But uh, you cannot get that without the access to the raw materials. And with raw materials, you need to get lucky. I mean, you cannot just build the mine anywhere, right? First, you need to situate uh, the the deposits and then they are uh, viable for the economic development and you start to develop them and you do not choose where the deposits are. This is something that, uh, you know, nature decides uh, about. And uh, China was not lucky in this regard. There are lithium resources in China, but as I already said, they are of not sufficient quality and it's expensive to extract and to transport them to the places where they can be used. 
So China became really dependent on the imports of lithium from abroad, and especially Australia and, and Latin America. So also like the, the race started really between these Chinese uh, lithium companies and not only Chinese lithium companies with among all lithium companies in the world, but perhaps Chinese were the most active because they were the first to realize the importance of this, to go around the world and to acquire maybe not the whole mines, but at least the stakes in the mines, uh, which would give uh, those companies a priority for the offtake agreements, right? Yeah, one of the things when you start this talking about lithium is you, you, you often hear that lithium is the most abundant element or one of the most abundant elements on the planet. It kind of gives this false notion that it is not a rate limiting factor in battery production. It's more on the chemical processing side and battery creation, which it is. But those take, say, two years versus getting a lithium operation mine up and running takes seven. So early on, you had the, the Chinese companies going out there, recognizing that there was relatively few locales that had you know, the sufficient quantity, the right regulatory background, the right financing background, etc., to make it economically viable to extract. And they were very aggressive in going out and, and either getting some kind of stake, as you say, some kind of interest in these mines. And it's fascinating to compare, say, Chang'e with Albemarle, who were driven by the needs to generate returns for their, their shareholders, right? And, and the, the subsequent bind or the contrast those two organizations are in. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, that's, that's, that's a long story, but uh, generally I think that Western stock-listed companies' uh, reason of, of being is to satisfy the shareholder and uh, to focus on profitability. And there's always enormous pressure on the profitability in the short term. For Chinese companies, it's a little bit different because they also need to keep certain national consideration in mind and uh, the wider national strategy as set by this plan. I mean, if they want to have the access, for instance, to the cheap financing from the state-owned banks and uh, all other forms of the government support on more subtle level. Yeah, exactly. So let's switch tack. We've we've looked at China. The the sort of the the corollary to that is is fascinating in how the U.S. and Europe were, I mean, you know, let's just say, late to the game. Right? You've got. The U.S., where the battery—well, the battery was invented in both those locales, and the, the Nobel prizes were handed out a couple of years ago to to Whittington and Goodenough and others. And the U.S. that has a long history of mining—I guess the first time we heard of it was when Elon Musk announced that they were going to be mining in, I think, Utah. Can you just tell us a bit about the U.S. story, and then even more fascinating, I feel, is the European story, where which put both both regions behind the curve. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, even if uh, U.S. has Tesla, which played an enormous role in popularizing electric vehicles, in making them sexy and de- desirable, then if we look at the state of the development of the battery supply chain in the U.S., it's still in a very nascent stages. You have very little of companies and factories that uh, do the battery materials and battery components there. You have very little mining for minerals used in the battery, especially for lithium. I mean, even if, uh, you know, Albemarle, uh, American multinational, is uh, one of the largest uh, lithium companies in the world, there is still only one operated lithium mine in the U.S., 
which produces not a significant volume of lithium on the global market. So, you know, really this battery supply chain is uh, in the infancy in the US. Uh, in Europe, uh, the situation is, is also quite similar. Many of the European automakers uh, in the past uh, were considering battery as a commodity product, a product that should be outsourced uh, for the production in the countries with a cheaper labor input. So uh, by that, they meant mostly Asia, what, what, you know, actually in the long run provided China with an enormous advantage. And, uh, uh, you know, the attitude was more like, okay, let's keep a research and development in Europe. Let's, let's try to invent new things here. But regarding the production, commercial scale production, we will do it in Asia. But somehow I think they missed the two important points. One was the link between R&D and uh, high-tech manufacturing. It's typically important in that industry to have an access to the factory floor and really understand the production process because this is not easy. And the second thing that they didn't understand was, uh, you know, the, the material, material security in Europe. So, uh, you know, that the fact that uh, you become dependent on uh, the import of batteries, uh, import of materials for the batteries, and uh, also, you know, the environmental aspect uh, of uh, all of this, uh, meaning that if you ship battery materials and battery components around the world, when you don't have the regionalized battery supply chain, you are increasing the overall uh, CO2 emission levels for this industry, right? And the whole point of this industry is to minimize the CO2 emission levels. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. Yeah, and you no longer have a choice, right? You don't actually know there's a bit of a black hole about the environmental destruction. And again, I I always want to emphasize, I think there's a difference between greenhouse gas emission and environmental degradation. And not only are, you know, both things are going on in that lithium supply chain. I mean, it's a very energy intensive process taking lithium or even concentrate and turning it into lithium hydroxide. You say in the book, it's, it's almost bizarre that we ended up with this circumstance in Germany in particular, where you'd had such a long association between that high-tech manufacturing and R&D and the likes of BMW and so forth. They've been doing this for years on any and everything. And there was even a small lithium you know, battery manufacturer there um, in the early two, 2010s. And for some reason, it just didn't happen, right? They, do you have any sense of why that was? Did they just not believe in EV? Did they think it was a commodity, not a technology? Can you, I just want to dig into that a bit more. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they didn't uh, realize that, uh, you know, the quality of the battery, uh, meaning that the components that you put into the battery, so really everything, right? Even the small things like the separator, the chemical mix that you use in the cathode, it really decides battery performance and hence about the performance of the electric vehicle. 
before the the key point of focus was the engine right and this was determinant of the uh, car performance and now it's a battery which is determinant of the car's performance so uh, somehow they missed that point and what would mattered in the past uh, for these companies was probably just the cost of the battery and it's it was always more expensive to produce it in europe than it was uh, to produce it in asia yeah whereas actually now we know the the key thing is is battery development and the one ultimate thing that's holding back evs seems to be range more than anything i mean everything else is fantastic about an ev car it just comes down to range and that comes down to to battery development and your your watt per hours versus kilograms but that that's a slightly different story okay so you know we're starting to get a sense of and it's it's very much now in the zeitgeist this idea that you know almost alongside it being analogous to, to oil 120 years ago, it has the same geopolitical relevance that we started seeing in the 20s and 30s as people recognize that you're either going to be a buyer of petroleum or a seller of it, and it's much better to be a seller of it from an economic standpoint. But because you're blessed with natural resources of lithium doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to uh, become the next sort of Saudi of lithium, which is a, a reference to in your book. Um, and, and that comes up in this lithium triangle of moving to Latin America, Bolivia versus Chile versus Argentina. And that's quite a long story, I know. But could you just give us a snapshot of, of how the differing fortunes of those states has been affected by not just the quality of their lithium deposits, which in all cases is good and varying degrees large, but it's actually the economic background, the political background, and the environmental backdrop that determines whether those countries have been successful in becoming significant players in the lithium supply chain. Yeah, so so there is this concept of a lithium triangle in Latin America, so Bolivia, uh, Chile, and Argentina. In the past, even these countries thought about creating uh, sort of the OPEC for lithium, <laughs> but this this uh, idea was abandoned. And from these three, uh, Chile is the biggest producer, followed by Argentina. Bolivia produces nothing at the moment, but it has the world's largest lithium resources in the ground. So from that perspective, it's also important. And just to you know, give you a short breakdown of all the issues and opportunities related to each of these countries, Bolivia uh, has been historically facing enormous uh, issues with mining development. In my book, I'm trying to make a point that it was probably related to the uh, many different stakeholders in the Bolivian political landscape who had the uh, influence on the development of these mining projects but they were not always acknowledged by the investors coming from the outside. And uh, the second major problem was always, in case of the Bolivia, a division of spoils. So in the past, for different companies, it was very difficult to reach a long-lasting agreement with the Bolivian government on how royalties and you know, other profits from mining should be shared. But you know, Bolivia is not a hopeless case, I think. They managed to develop the gas resources, so why shouldn't they develop lithium in the in the future if we look at the really uh, long time horizon? In Chile, it's also interesting because uh, you know you have only two uh, lithium mining companies in Chile, even if there is a potential to have more. 
And it's actually difficult for the new players uh, to establish a new mine in Chile. They are typically discouraged from the very start because it's a government who's the owner of lithium deposits and deposits, and you cannot really acquire the deposit. It's uh, being leased out to you. And the government who controls also the capacities expansion by approving what maximum capacity expansion is viable under the given circumstances, also taking into the consideration, you know, environmental uh, concerns, you know, which is good uh, if you think about it. But on the other hand, for the private players, it creates a set of challenges. And, uh, you know, this control of the government and government uh, agencies uh, over lithium deposits there is also related to the fact that the old legislation is in place, which treats lithium as a strategic resource. One of the major uses of lithium was in the nuclear industry. And this old Chile's legislation is still treating it like that, like the, uh, you know, the, the, the element that you use mostly in military, which is obviously not, not, not true anymore. And for Argentina, uh, Argentina at the moment, you know, it's considered to be a really mining friendly jurisdiction, also a jurisdiction where this, uh, you know, government influence is decentralized, uh, where different lithium bearing provinces, governors has a lot to say, and they typically encourage the mining activity as a source of income for the, for the provinces. And on the side of the disadvantages. Chile is a mining country. I mean, it has been a big copper miner uh, for very long. They have experience with that. Uh, Argentina, before lithium, wasn't much of a, a mining country. But maybe because of that, uh, you know, it's also the country which is very much open to the mm. new uh, greenfield projects. And if you look at the inflow of new projects into the Latin America, they mostly choose Argentina for uh, location. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so, and again, this is a crescendo, or this is a an ever increasing scramble for lithium. You also in the book talk about India, like there's a country that doesn't have lithium natural resources, but is very clearly looking toward what does the electron future look like for them, and and how strategically can they not be disadvantaged by that fact? Can you just talk a little bit about India's plan? Yes, so, you know, India has a, a very nascent uh, EV market, but due to its size and population uh, with, with very big potential, uh, not only in the form of electric vehicles, but in form of uh, widely defined electric mobility, including scooters, bikes, motorcycles. And there is, you know, a big support of government for the development of e-mobility. But the problem is that India do not have lithium within its borders. So the government directed basically the free state-owned mining companies to acquire cobalt and lithium resources abroad because, uh, you know, Indian's government, I think they realize that they have a potential to produce batteries. They have the potential to produce EVs with, uh, you know, strong brands as Tata in automotive, but they don't have the resource, right? And they need to get somehow their hands on the, on the, on, on the lithium. And, you know, it has certain geopolitical aspects as well, because, you know, it's not only about starting up a new industry, but uh, India is also third largest uh, oil importer in the world. And uh, they would prefer to uh, shed this dependency on oil to some extent. Also, 
India faces a huge problem with pollution and the government tries to carve that. So, you know, they have these incentives to, to go really into the electric industry. Okay, so so I think we've we painted that narrative that this is, and we're seeing it across at the governmental level, at the corporate level, suddenly this recognition of the need to secure these supply chains, and that starts with lithium. I've sat in a number of meetings with, with the commodity trading community, you know, leaders within that sector, and it's kind of, this is all very well and good, but what it, and there's, there's a lot of questions about where and how they will participate in this. You know, what what is the commodity trading community's role in lithium, where at the moment it's highly vertically integrated? The economics might even not match up to what they need because simply you've got this strategic push from governments, from state-owned actors, national champions, and so forth. Can you? I'd love to get your your take on how do you see this lithium market developing? Do you see in the future there being a a thriving trade in whether it's lithium concentrate, lithium ore, lithium hydroxide, or does it all really ultimately sit at the specialty chemical level and you're going to see these this continued vertical integration and some resistance to standardization? Mm-hmm. All right. So, you know, here we have two, two, two different aspects. One is this everlasting question whether lithium is a commodity or whatever it's a specialty chemical. And I think it depends on what level we are really uh, talking about. If, if we talk about lithium on the level of spodium in concentrate or uh, at the level of lithium carbonate technical grade, as some mines are producing, I would treat it more as a commodity. But when we talk about the specific lithium chemicals, which are used by uh, you know cathode materials makers, which needs to follow a strict guidance as they operate with battery manufacturers and with automakers, uh, because obviously the quality of the components used in the battery, you know, impacts their performance, impacts their safety. So here, this qualification process, especially from the side of automotive industry, is really long. So here we talk about lithium chemicals as a specialty chemicals. I think, especially since uh, different cathode materials makers have different specs that they expect so they tolerate different levels of impurities mm-hmm. and uh, and that that really makes lithium a specialty chemical here regarding the evolution of the lithium trading that's that's something that really i, I follow with much of interest especially since i'm coming from commodity trading background on one hand you could say yeah in the past oil was also traded from producers to the consumers directly and there was no spot market. There were no, 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 basically intermediaries, large intermediaries in between. I think it was a uh, Mark Rich, late Glencore founder, who who started the spot market for oil, right? And here, when we look at lithium, you know, at the moment we also have not so much of the trading activity. In the last two years, so I could observe how uh, more and more. Trading houses become interested in this space, but I think that the quantities that they trade are still uh, relatively small. There is thriving spot market in China, but uh, to my knowledge, is dominated mostly by the Chinese companies. Sometimes, you know, purely focused on trading of lithium and the chemicals, not really typical commodity trading trading houses that we have in mind. 
so yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I see the I see the see the prospects here for trading in the long run. Uh, I mean, especially because what you need to have to trade any commodity, really, you need to have the fragmented market, right? Where you have a lot of buyers and sellers, and then you can navigate the arbitrage opportunities. And I think for lithium chemicals, it starts to exist slowly uh, on the level of the lithium as a commodity. So if we speak about spodium in concentrate, I don't know, maybe, maybe you know, as more and more mines will emerge in the future, there will be uh, possibilities for, you know, using blending, for instance, to, uh, you know, make profits on, on trade of this concentrate as, as you do with other metal concentrates, right? Yeah, and I assume, you know, ultimately this will come down in some part to demand, right? At the moment, you have OEMs, car manufacturers partnering with battery producers, and those battery producers are partnering, either own the supply or have long-term contracts because, again, that specificity flows all the way up to what the battery that goes into the car. You know, at some point, if demand really outstrips supply, you are going to have it be far better if you're the one with the lithium to have an open marketplace where you get the best price for it, not be beholden to a certain set of chemical processes. So I think, you know, much as it did in oil, it will probably, you'll you'll see this develop. And I think the interesting question now is, what if you are a commodity trader, or you are a a, a, a miner or whatever it might be what moves do you need to make so that you're not left out when this becomes a really thriving market in 10 years and do you have any sense of you know just again you, know, you are a commodity trader by background do you see we've obviously seen the trading houses look into the circular economy they're well versed in the other battery metals like cobalt are you seeing any of them make any moves into to lithium to to look at uh, to either the the specialty chemical or the concentrate level yeah i think you know the the first thing would be to establish uh, the presence on the market uh, even if the uh, volumes that you can trade right now are probably not not significant especially for the large trading houses but uh, i think it's important to be there from the very beginning what can really stimulate the development of the trade in lithium is also certain development of the standardization of the lithium chemicals. I've already seen such initiatives in China uh, where where Chinese uh, National Lithium Association started to codify what became considered as a standard battery grade and you know, I'm not sure if this standardization is finished and especially, you know, some of the larger buyers, so larger uh, battery makers, larger EV manufacturers, they will always have this power to dictate the specs that they need and that they want, right? And they don't care probably what's the, the standard on the market. But we need to remember also that the lithium market is not only created by the demand from EVs, uh, you know, there is also a demand from electronic devices, from other forms from of mobility. Of course, in comparison to the automotive applications, it's a small part of the market. But I mean, you know, th- this is something that that you can start with when when you start trading. What you know, if you if you're a you know a trading house right now, is there the opportunity for you to participate in? The, on the various spot markets, what sort of concrete things do you think uh, are you seeing the traders start to do? Or, you know, how can you start to build that foothold? 
yeah, you know, like uh, commodity traders are traditionally secretive, right? They don't really reveal much of the of the strategy. I think the reasonable thing to do right now is to establish the presence on the China spot market as a party participating in the trades, as a you know market maker in a sense, because uh, you know the only the real spot market for lithium that you have right now is in China. Most of the industry actually still works on the long term contracts. So, uh, you know, here, here, the, at the moment, the possibilities are limited. Uh, on the other hand, pot market is very volatile. Uh, the price is very volatile over there. So it provides traders with the profit opportunities. I think also, you know, there are, you have many new entrants into the battery industry. And for these new entrants, it's difficult to get their hands on the uh, battery raw materials. Here they could also use the traders' help with establishing the uh, logistic network and getting the material at the price that uh, would be more and more stable and that would allow for a more uh, you know stable operation of the company. So uh, you know the traders in theory could take on the price risks, right, and provide the logistic services to these new players and also limit their the risk on the price side and also on the security of supplies side because uh, you know we've we've poured bottlenecks uh, in the last months and uh, lockdowns before the supply chain was was not really stable but I, I, that's why i find it fascinating this story and i think your book really encapsulates that again like I, we started off with you know my analogy of it's like the first few chapters of the prize where where there's a recognition of the how crucial this material is and and you see the scramble of certain organizations to vertically integrate and to secure supply. And then I imagine there's analogies going forwards from that book on the market development. So a final couple of questions. You end the book talking about battery technology and some efforts there. And you, know, you kind of walk away from that chapter feeling like irrespective lithium is going to be the key component. And whilst there might be some, some developments, the solid state stuff that gets knocked around is doesn't solve some of the fundamental challenges. You also talk about, you know, the future use cases in planes, which I found fascinating. And again, I'll leave readers to, to pick up a copy of your book to discover all that. Is there, you know, you, you finished this, this book came out last year. You know, what developments have happened since that have continued your thesis or surprised you? Yeah, I mean, you know, there was, there was, it's a very dynamic market. So uh, something happens here uh, every week and you need to closely watch it, I think, to understand it. But one of the major developments was price uh, skyrocketing, rising close to even thousand percent on the, on the spot market after we went uh, out of the lockdowns. And that was, uh, I think, a sort of the surprise for, for the industry players that it rebounded so quickly. Another, I think, important event, fairly recent one, is Inflation Reduction Act, which was announced not long ago and I think which has the potential to really spur the development of the US-based supply chain for the batteries. And what else? Uh, I think that, that since the book publication, I've observed more and more investments in Europe by uh, East Asian companies active in this space, mostly South Korean and Chinese. These investments very often follow this model that when you have the major battery plant established in the given European country, soon after or, the, or when you have the announcement of such plant to be established, 
in the in the given European country. Soon enough, the producers of the components follow and they establish the cluster for the production of the battery components in this region. So, so it's very interesting because you know such such companies. I think they will face certain challenges uh, related to the uh, different working culture in different regions. So kind of the similar trajectory to what Western companies were facing when they were coming to Asia. And I think it's more so interesting that some of these players, uh, they feel uh, sometimes hesitant about investing in the facilities, which which has this the, the most important core technologies, because they are a little bit afraid about the know-how spillover and they don't want to lose the edge over European companies, for instance. Or Western mm, it's companies. Going, it's going back the yeah, other way. Yeah, it's going the yeah. other way. <laughs> and I mean, you cannot patent everything, right? It's it's sometimes you have this know-how which is difficult to patent, and then you need to protect it. Yeah. So that's that's the issue that some of the East Asian companies are, are worried about. Yeah, I think I think that's that's about it. I was also stunned by the pace of the development, for instance, of the battery supply chain in South Korea. I mean, when when everything else was slowing down during COVID and the lockdowns. They were pushing through, developing the capacities, and they left Japan far behind. Uh, in that sense, uh, they are catching up with China, which is obviously difficult considering China's size. But I think it's it's, it's fairly interesting how this industry is taking uh, is developing over there. Yeah, well, it's a fantastic book. I can recommend to to all of our listeners to go and get their hands on a copy. It's available on on Amazon and all good. Book retailers, I'm sure, published by Hearst and Company. And uh, yeah, Lithium, the global race for battery dominance and the new energy revolution. Thank you very much, Ukash, for coming on the show and, and, and sharing your thoughts on it with us. Thank you for having me, Paul. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.